Welcome to The Driven Entrepreneur, where we sit down with visionaries, trailblazers, and entrepreneurs and discover why and how they do what they do. We'll get the backstory, plus plenty of life and business lessons along the way. Here's your host, Matt Browning. Hey, hey, welcome back to The Driven Entrepreneur. It's Matt Browning. So good to be with you today, right here, right now. Wherever you're listening to this, whether you're in the car, in bed, uh, on the couch, <laughs> on the treadmill, I'm glad that I am in your life, that you're in my life. Like You are so important, and I want you to know that. I hope you had a good Memorial Day uh, holiday, um, not just, of course, for the barbecues and, and all of that, you know, having a day off work, um, but certainly you know, taking a moment, as, as we did here, my family, to, to just stop and realize this is a chance to to remember why we have the freedoms we have and why we have the opportunities we have. And, you know, no matter what your opinion is on, on any different uh, level of, of government or military or anything, this is a time for me, for me that I look through any policies and I look through any governments and I look at the people. And, you know, my grandfather, my mom's dad served in World War II. And I never got a chance to hear many of his stories as a little boy. And, you know, by the time he passed away, um, I was still kind of too young to go, hey, wait a minute, you know, I want to know what happened, what this is like for you. I I think most people at some point have had someone in the service who has touched their lives. So I just want to say, as we start off on Memorial Day week, it's Friday here, ready for the next weekend. Um, Thank you to the men and women who serve and have served and uh, sacrificed. Thank you so much. Let's get into the show this week. This week, we are having a longer show, and I'm so excited about this. If you saw in the title, of course, it's why you're listening to it. Um, I got to sit down with really one of my heroes. I've been waiting for this opportunity for months and months when I first got the introduction. My guest this week is Kathy O'Dowd. Now, if you're listening to this you know we uh, on the radio, we will have an extended version. We had a, a longer interview conversation. When you sit down with someone who's as accomplished as Kathy, you don't cut the interview short for radio time. So we have the extended full interview uh, on the podcast. So if you're listening on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, iHeart, any uh, download streaming places like that, you'll have, of course, the whole interview. If you're listening in your car right now, make sure you go over to iTunes or whatever platform you want, subscribe to the show, but you'll find that Kathy and I get into some really, really interesting stuff. She's the first woman to climb Mount Everest from both sides, which is the big claim to fame. <laughs> That's pretty cool. I mean, that means she climbed Mount Everest, the highest peak in the entire world, 29,000 feet plus, an 8,000 meter peak, twice. Not only that, though, she's also the first South African woman to climb Mount Everest, and she was on the first ever South African, all South African team to go up Everest. So we really get into some... Um, down and dirty stories, some real stuff. And if you know me, one of the reasons I'm so excited about this is I've been a rock climber since I was 19 and I love mountaineering. Nothing like this, nothing as extreme as Kathy's done. Um, you know, I've gone up uh, the technical ascent of Mount Whitney, the highest peak in the lower 48 states. I've gone up the technical ascent of Half Dome in Yosemite, if you know those mountains, if you're local uh, in the area. But I have not done the kinds of things Kathy does. She's been a climber since 21 years old. And, you know, she came uh, for the interview all the way from the Pyrenees, uh, way, way nestled in, in a little tiny landlocked spot, a mountainous region in Europe. She's a South African climber, of course. She's gone up four expeditions to Mount Everest, and she wrote her name in history as the first woman to climb Mount Everest from both sides. She also, uh, I found out, and we have a, a really long conversation about this, it's um, it was hard to have because... You know, when we're talking about about climbing, there's the the victories, right? And that's what people write about, and that's what they speak on. And that's she's a circuit speaker as well. She's a phenomenal keynote speaker. But there's also the tragedies, and the tragedies are real. Like they're real people that you know you're on the mountain with, and and um, you know, knock on wood, I I have not lost a partner or someone that I've climbed with while on the mountain, and Kathy has. And we, we talked about what that's like and how to get through that. She was actually on Mount Everest during the infamous uh, tragic storm of 1996. And you might be familiar with this because John Krakauer, famous journalist, he wrote 
um, a, a couple of really, really phenomenal books you'll be familiar with. One of them is called Into Thin Air. And Krakauer was, uh, in, in May of 96, there was a massive storm at Everest, losing quite a few people. One, well, you know what, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll let Kathy tell you the story, but if you've ever heard of that storm, if you've ever heard about that Everest disaster that's been chronicled probably more than any other storm in the history of the mountain, Kathy was at Camp 4 while that storm hit, and Krakauer was in the um, the party just beyond them. So they were already making a summit bid while they were in Camp 4 of four camps waiting for their chance probably the next day. So we talk about when we get into what their plan was, um, how they didn't know what was going on exactly, how bad it was going to get, but what they decided to do. Um, and then even the moment of, you'll never guess who calls them on the sat phone at base camp when they get back down, deciding if they should do a summit bid or not. Um, an unbelievable phone call to get. We'll talk about that in the interview. Um, she also went, went through a moment. We, we talk about this in detail. Um, BBC Radio did a long interview, and they described this as the choice, quote-unquote, the choice when you have a, uh, someone's life in your hands. And she, she talks very openly um, about the, the, the meeting with really who would have been, who was the first woman from the United States to reach the summit of Mount Everest without oxygen. And she ran into this woman and had the choice of how, what do you do when you run into someone who needs help? Certainly you stop. And she tells that full story. Um, like I, I, I'm being stopped right now just as, as I think about this, because I remember, remember as we're sitting in this interview, I think if this if this is interesting to you, if you want to understand about human nature, human dynamics, and really the will to survive and the will to succeed and move forward, uh, you're going to really, really enjoy this interview with Kathy. Um, she has been all over. We also talk about some other things as well. You know, she's spoken as a keynote speaker for the Who's Who of Company. She's spoken for Microsoft, Nestle, Toyota, DHL, GE, and Rolls Royce. You've seen her everywhere in the media from National Geographic to GQ. And she has a phenomenal uh, book, and she's a New York Times bestselling author. The book is called Just for the Love of It, and we'll talk about that. Uh, yeah, so good. So you know what? Let me shut up and let me, without any further ado, get to my interview. I hope you enjoy um, who is becoming a good friend of mine, Miss Kathy O'Dowd. So Kathy, uh, man, I, as I told you already, I'm so excited to chat with you Um this is this is the interview I've been looking forward to for a long, long time. Thank you for coming all the way from the Pyrenees. In will this be technically Europe where you live? Uh, yes, it's a tiny country, postage stamp country called Andorra in the Pyrenees Mountains in southern yes. Europe. Andorra, that's right. So you're kind of sandwiched. What is it between France and Germany, or is it France and Fra France and Spain? It is France and Spain. Okay. Yeah, I was trying to find that on the map. It, it is. It's literally a postage stamp size. Very small, yes. <laughs> well, thanks for taking your time out of your speaking schedule for this. Um, you know, you, you've been a climber since 21, uh, so at least, what, five or six years? I'm not going not, not gonna to call you out, but, I mean, you've been climbing for a little while, and, and over the years, you've turned that passion into, like, a phenomenal speaking career as well as you continue adventuring nonstop. Um, I want to get into your history, your story, and everything. But first, I just want to, mm -hmm. when did you decide to take that passion? A lot of people in our world want to, you know, they're passionate about something they love and they think about making that into a business, so to speak. Now, rather than going into a guiding business, and, and you may do some of that, um, but rather than that, you decided to go into the professional speaking arena and share your stories. When did you decide that that was going to be a thing you did? Did you start off that way or was that something that kind of unfolded as you gained more notoriety? It unfolded. And I, I think this is one of the frustrating answers to this kind of question, because if you're trying to plan it from the beginning, oh, I want to be a motivational speaker and I need to go out and do something big enough to catch the attention of the world so that, you know, they'll then give me a platform. That's incredibly hard to do. The vast majority of people like myself were pursuing a love, a passion, a drive of some kind, and then they got lucky. And that's not to say that there's not work involved. You, first of all, you've got to be in the game to be lucky. You may be in the game and never get lucky. That's the sad truth. But if you're not in the game, nothing happens. 
So if you're not in the game, you have a 0% chance of getting lucky. <laughs> exactly. But being in the game is not enough and trying, trying really, really, really hard, I actually think is not enough. Luck plays a big part in this. Of course, you have to recognize your luck and plenty of people have only recognized the opportunity once it has whistled past them and disappeared into history. And then you have to exploit that lucky opportunity, you know, and that takes work and time and thought. But honestly, my lucky break was becoming the first South African to climb Everest. And not even just that, on a team that was notorious because we had so much public infighting, which was horrible at the time, it makes for great stories and made for lots of media coverage. Because right, you're and, going, you're coming out of South Africa as a climber in the really like in the late nineties when you're like doing yeah. some more, again, notable climbs. Mm -hmm. So you're like, just to catch everyone up a little bit on the culture of South Africa, you know, you're, you are in a pretty tumultuous time in the country, but also are you talking infighting for the culture of South Africans or in the climbing team specifically or both? No, I'm talking about the climbing team. Just the but, climbing team. Cause it's a pretty, pretty interesting time in the country as well. So where, how does that all play into your decisions to come out and, and say, yeah, because we were going to get to this, but you know, you were on the first ever South African Everest expedition. Did you feel prepared at the time? And what I mean is, you know, like you're, you're one of these climbers that, you know, you've paid your dues, you've been at it, you've practiced, you're good at what you do at this point. Um, I think you would have deserved the spot, certainly. Did you feel personally that way? Were you worried? Was, was there some of that clamoring for who gets the spot? Um, and how did you feel about being picked to go on that first ever team? Oh, God. Well, I mean, the way I got the spot was just so awkward. So I'm going to backtrack just very quickly. So yes, grow up in South Africa, uh, start rock climbing at 18, start mountaineering at 21. This is just a holiday activity. You know, I'm just spending all my money and all my free time, I'm mostly still at university accumulating higher degrees, partly to stay out of the job market because I can't think of a job I actually want. So you're like every other climber. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, all the, all the number of, you know, Endless master's degrees we accumulate between us because we're trying not to have to go and work for a living. So I'm doing that and paying my own way to climb in the Andes and the Alps and Central Africa. I'd love to go to the Himalaya. Can't even begin to see how to make it happen. This is long before commercial expeditions where you can buy a place or anything like that. And this is this country that has just emerged from apartheid. So we've got big issues on our mind and none of them are about mountain climbing. It was just not a thing that happens in South Africa much. And then 1995, a big newspaper story, first South African Everest expedition, first one ever. And kind of the, the hook is that they're going to be carrying the flag of the new South Africa. This flag's only about 12 months old at this point. I was just going to say, tell, can you just kind of as a segue, just real briefly explain um, what it's like in the country coming, what apartheid was, and then what it's like coming out of that just a few years really removed? Well, apartheid was the system by which the whites of South Africa who made up, and my numbers are going to be very rough, uh, I don't know, six, seven percent of the population were the only people who could vote and basically controlled the country and ran it in their own interests while being thoroughly patronizing about the fact that they were trying to develop the native tribes of South Africa. And, you know, democracy was something that would come along at some point in the distant future. And, you know, I was a, a beneficiary of that system. There's no doubt the white middle class lived very nice, cushy lives because we, you know, most of the country's resources got directed towards us. But it was unsustainable, obviously, and deeply unfair. And we had this am amazing transition whereby the white government did actually voluntarily give up power. And a black government took over off on the basis of a democratic one-person, one-vote election in 1994. Nelson Mandela became the president. And in 1995, up comes the first South African Everest expedition with Nelson Mandela as the patron and the aim to kind of carry the flag of the new South Africa uh, to the highest point in the world. So what, what, what a symbolic and yet literal, just what, what an amazing chance, really. 
Yes, but complicated. I mean, let's face it, mountain climbing is still a fairly middle-class activity and a pretty white activity. I mean, in the last five years, there's been quite a lot of pushback against that. Lots of, of really dynamic groups, uh, people of color, women, uh, people out of kind of working-class backgrounds, pushing their way into the outdoor space. But even now, it remains fairly white. And it remains fairly expensive. So on one hand, you actually need a multiracial team from South Africa because post-apartheid, that's what you only represent. people with climbing experience are middle-class whites. So pulling a team together was quite challenging. But they got a team of men, and they had a media sponsor, a newspaper, who decided the whole story wasn't that interesting because, again, no, no culture of mountain climbing in South Africa. Let's run a competition to find a girl. And they acted as if she was going to get planted on the summit like a flag. And we'll bring um, her up in her dress from the 1920s, right? Like <laughs> With one, a hemp rope. One of the sort of the headlines for this thing was, do you have the balls to be our woman on the summit? I was like, oh. I mean, just think about it. You're That's a climber. The men have been invited based on their CVs, their experience. And the women are supposed to answer this advertisement, put in a motivation, and then basically go through a selection process, which essentially looks like a competition, in order to be the girl who's chosen to join the team. It was just horrible. So it's really almost more of a PR campaign, yes. not an actual skilled you know, a, a climbing uh, resume. Right. Did, totally, did, totally. Did look at your resume. Was it important once they found you or you found them? Was it important that, oh, good, she actually knows what she's doing. She's going to be a partner. Uh, and I wanted to ask you, and I guess in the most inexperienced, meaning I don't have the experience of this being also a white male, right? Um, what was that like? Was it hard, easy? Did you assimilate well? Was there pushback being, you know, in the mid 90s, being a female climber? And as you said, predominantly, easy for me to say, predominantly a male and white male dominated uh, sport. What was that like when you came on as the woman? Were they saying, we're glad you're here? Or they said, hey, get out of the way, don't get hurt. What was that like? Oh, well, let me, let me give you the Cliff Notes version of how it plays <laughs> out. This was very early reality television. We weren't even using the word yet. So they come up with a short list of six women. And there's no doubt, in retrospect, we were chosen because we were interesting personalities rather than because it was the top six climbers, female climbers in the country. And of the six, I was probably the one who was there for experience. Uh, we went and climbed Kilimanjaro on a selection expedition with a male team leader and a male journalist and a male film crew um, documenting all of this. Wow. And at the end of this, two of us are invited to join the team myself and a young black woman. And there'd been a lot of media coverage around this, so the sponsor was happy. The men on the team were not happy. Really? These two women with admittedly less experience than they had were getting all of the coverage. They were not impressed. So we walked into a very frosty reception. So it, it wasn't as much, apologize for interrupting, it, it wasn't as much that all, like, I'm worried about how the climb is going to go specifically. I'm sure that was maybe addressed, but it, you feel like it was a little bit more of the, hey, what about my media? And, you know, just because they're women, they're getting the, the coverage. It was a little bit more posturing and things like that. Oh, yes, uh, absolutely. But it wasn't just about us. This was a team that for complicated reasons was poorly chosen. People were invited, I think essentially because they had the, the shiniest CVs or they fitted the various boxes that kind of needed to be ticked to try and pull together this post-apartheid South African expedition. From a pool, it was you know, incredibly shallow. And even the best climbers in the country didn't exactly have you know, world-class levels of experience. So, it wasn't just that the men didn't get on with us, they didn't get on with each other. Uh, so there was a whole lot of negativity within the group before we even left South Africa. And how many we were, were falling? On, sorry. Uh, how many were on the team? Uh, we started out a team of 11 of whom four were Sherpas. 
Okay. So, so you have seven, seven. And the Sherpas just can you briefly explain Sherpa just so everyone gets it from your perspective? They're not South Africans, correct? They're from local. Yeah, yeah. So Sherpa, in its origin, is a tribe who lives close to Everest and actually have genetic adaptation to altitude. And a lot of them get work helping carry loads on expeditions. So these days, Sherpa is also used to mean somebody who works as a porter and in the modern era as a guide sometimes on mountains like Everest. So climbers are carrying their pack with their goods, their oxygen, their et cetera. But the Sherpas are bringing like the tents, bringing the heavier equipment, pots and pans, things like that, essentially. It depends entirely how you do it. So if you're on a modern guided expedition, you're probably barely carrying your own sleeping bag if you've paid a lot of money. You carry you some, t- some cliff bars and some water and... <laughs> oh, t- oh, totally. Um, and you'll have a, you know, a little sh- team of Sherpas. Um, you know, some of these private exped- some of these personal guided expeditions, I think the most expensive in 2019 is 130,000 US dollars. Oh my gosh. Just that's for one person. So it's becoming uh, almost a luxury, like VIP experience compared to uh, just an expedition. Oh, guide. yes. I mean, wow. the, these, these guys, they get flown out midway through the expedition for a five-star hotel spa break in Kathmandu. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Not at all. It's, Everest is highly commodified now in, you know, in 2018, 2019. Uh, it's been eye-opening to watch it happen over the last 10 years. Wow. Okay. So let's come back to, we have 11 people, seven South Africans, four Sherpas, and you're moving on to become this first team. Yes. So um, these people don't get on with each other. Uh, We have a team leader who's pretty good at logistics, but he's no good at people management. Uh, He's ex-army and much too authoritarian. You have no line of authority when you go climbing. You can't, you know, threaten to demote people or fire them or court-martial them or something. Climbers, by nature, are mostly pretty hippie in their outlook. And they're just kind of like, yeah, no, I'm not doing that just because somebody called you the leader. So it's tricky being the leader of a team. You have to put real work into kind of chairing a consensus and perhaps manipulating is a bit strong, but kind of steering your team members towards what you think they ought to be doing. If they, really, if they really refuse, you're going to have to listen to why they're refusing. You, you... So, yeah, it's, it's a tough call being a leader of climbers. And that already wasn't, that already wasn't, it, it's one thing if it's a combobulated team or people who have climbed together before, you have some of that, but you have essentially seven people who have never climbed together. Is that accurate? Some of them had climbed together before. Some of them kind of knew each other vaguely you know, within the community. So there were already alliances within the team based on previous climbing experience. And yeah, it broke down in a whole set of complicated, dramatic ways, none of which was helped by having a journalist from the sponsoring newspaper who didn't like climbing, but he did like conflict. Uh, So he liked nothing better than needling the team members. Do you know what she said about him? You know, what do you think? The next thing you know, it's all over the newspaper every Sunday. So they really are trying to make like an MTV reality show in in the 90s before it existed. Because, I mean, you know, newspapers have known for 100 years, right? What sells is sensationalism. And and this What sells is interpersonal drama and conflict. That's the basis of reality television. And this really was the beginning of this modern era. And the journalist was just loving this. You know, that's so sad to me that, that you have something that has the potential to sell papers through inspiration, right? Like really, truly one of these underdog stories of, of the team coming together, banding together for a new country. And you, you have the chance for that, and, and, but they go about it a different way. Um, and the, the, now, am I right? This is the, the trip that really this ended up being, was this your first summit attempt and first summit on this trip? Yes. So... Um, Let's jump it forward or we'll be here forever. (laughs) Uh, The team falls apart. Three people walk out in basically a failed power play. Uh, The journalist goes home, thank God. Uh, A radio station spots the vacuum and sends a really nice young radio reporter who takes over the, the media side of it. We get to base camp. We're now notorious as the team that can't even get to base camp without falling apart. 
<laughs> there are some famous teams at Basecamp. This is one of the very first years where they allowed multiple teams on the same roof. So it's, it wasn't crowded by modern standards, but it felt crowded back then. You know, this yes. was quite new uh, to be on a mountain this big with this many teams. And there were some famous climbers. There was Rob Hall, probably the most famous guide out of New Zealand. Scott sure. Fisher, one of the most famous guide out of the United States at the time. And David Brashears leading the IMAX expedition. And off we go. And then there are a whole bunch of smaller teams from smaller countries as well. Everybody moves up the mountain. We actually make quite good progress. And we're kind of ready to try and make a bid for the top around the 10th of May. This is, can set the stage. Yeah. This is May 10th, 1996, correct? Yes, exactly. If, if you know where we're going with this, if you're listening, this is probably the most famous storm that's ever hit Everest. John Krakauer wrote about it, chronicles in his book, Into Thin Air. Phenomenal book, highly suggest. Right after Kathy's book, um, get John Krakauer's book. It's still, I mean, it's just compelling to understand that. And you were on the mountain in the midst of this, about to make a summit bid or close to it. You were on Camp 4, I believe. I don't want to yep. I want to let you tell the story, but this is a storm that is devastating, takes many lives, several teams stuck. And Kathy, you're right in the middle of this um, so tell us what happens May 10th, 1996. Essentially, on the 10th of May, four teams move up to the top camp. Ourselves, the Taiwanese, Rob Hall's team, and Scott Fisher's team. And the weather is not brilliant. It's not bad, but it's just not great. And we, we were well aware that we were not terribly experienced. We were very conservative. And one of our kind of hard lines was that we, were, we weren't going to climb into unknown ground in unstable weather. So what I'm saying is, you know, a piece of the mountain, say between camp one and camp two, that we've done it before. Yeah, okay, we'll climb that line in poor weather because we know it already. But we're not going to do our first push into unknown ground in unstable weather. And above camp four, unknown ground. So we decided to wait, which is a gamble because you don't get many days to wait at Camp 4 before you run out of supplies and physical strength. Yeah, so how's the, what's the altitude of Camp 4 to give people an idea? Because you're way uh, up. 8,000 8, meters. 8,000 yeah. meters, which yeah. is scarcely. Yeah. So, that, so, so this is what they the call summit. the death zone. So, you, so Camp yeah. 4 is officially in the death zone. This is where your body stops yeah. uh, processing nutrients, essentially. Yes, I mean, the death zone is a bit of a dramatic term <laughs> produced by Reinhold Messner. Uh, but the fact remains, it gets pretty grim above 8,000 meters. There's not a lot of oxygen. You're not lasting long up there. You're not camping no. out there for a month. No, definitely not. So we decide to wait. The other three teams go. And I mean, that's hard. When climbers as good as Fisher and Hall are going, it's very tempting to just like slip in behind them and follow them. But we didn't. We stayed. They got to the top which again was just a heartbreaking moment because we, you know, we, we, can, we get reports kind of on our radio system from our base camp. They tell us that other teams have reached the summit. And then on the way down, the storm hits. And I mean, the truth is, it's probably not the worst storm that's ever hit Everest. It's a storm that hit Everest and some very famous people were killed and a very famous journalist survived. And it was the first storm in the modern age where Everest went viral. This was the first year teams had websites at Basecamp. Just think oh, about that. So, we're, yeah. only, we're only two years into websites being a thing. Right. So you're 1996. So if this same storm right. happens 20 years prior, you just don't have the, the media coverage. You don't have the ability for people to jump onto a, what then you know, became a blog eventually and, and read about this, right? Yeah, this was the very first time that there was basically live reporting coming off Everest. Uh, and, you know, one of the, the, first, the first helicopter to come in after the disaster wasn't a rescue helicopter. It was a Japanese film crew. We, this was the first time mountaineering went viral in the modern age. And, yeah, by the time that storm was done, we got trapped up there for two more nights. Um, most, a lot of those climbers rarely battled to get back to camp. And as Krakauer's book tells, Krakauer's about one of 12 books about this whole yeah, incident. Yeah. On our side of the mountain, five people die. 
and one of the survivors basically is has been lost and left for dead and crawls back um, to everyone's surprise, including his own, uh, and manages to survive with terrible frostbite. And both team leaders are killed, Scott Fisher and Rob Hall. Gosh. Uh, so it was an incredibly dramatic, very traumatic unfolding story. And at the end of it, I mean, everybody pulled back to base camp. Everybody's out of supplies and emotionally just traumatized, physically exhausted. So you, now you did, I don't want to steal the thunder, but you did eventually make a bid for the summit and you, mm -hmm. you went up uh, May 25th. So two weeks after, did you stay at camp for a couple of days to the hard part of the storm and then come back down to base camp and then begin the ascent back up again? Or what was, what, what was even the mindset and the process of that? If people are, goodness sakes, are dying on, on the descent down in that storm, how do you rally the troops and I know I, I sense this is going to be, I've never been through something like that before. And I sense that this is going to be one of those really an applicable lesson in anywhere in life or business to go, how do you, in the middle of fear, in the middle of defeat, in the middle of loss, how do you rally that team and say, you know, guys, let's not go home? Okay. Three important elements, I think. Maybe four. First of all, just briefly, if you're surprised that people can be killed on Everest, you haven't done your preparation. Mountains are dangerous, all of them. The 14,000ers in the United States, the Pyrenees where I live, you know, even minor mountains in summer, if the weather changes, if people are ill-prepared, people die in the wilderness. Yes. So Everest is not some incredible exception to that. And you do need to have done all your homework about acceptable risk and how you're going to manage it and how you're going to avoid it and have the discussion with your family and talk about why you think it's worth taking the gamble. So all of that needs to have been done long before you put your hand up for Everest. But in this particular situation, basically, I think four things got us back up the mountain. We pulled down to base camp and our leader was very clear, no discussion, no second guessing, just don't even think about what you want to do. 48 hours, sleep, eat, just try and decompress from this experience. Then we got back together as a group and he said, individually, do you want to go home or would you like to try again? Uh, so again, no pressure about trying to judge what other people in the group want, just individually. And every single one of us wanted to try again. Okay, why? And I think two things came out of that disaster. One was a sense, of course, that this might be our only chance ever to get on the Himalayan peak. And we did have this amazing mission with the flag of the new South Africa. This wasn't something to be given up on easily. But the other one is, how do you think about the disaster? So we weren't heroes. We didn't do anything terribly useful, but we didn't panic. We didn't make mistakes. We didn't get sucked into following other people against our own better judgment. It's like, okay, if we can survive the storm at 8,000 meters, presumably in good conditions, we can get to the top. So there's a kind of confidence in looking at disaster and saying, we survived. Yeah. Okay, let's think about what we could do. The same skills in good conditions. So you can reframe disaster. Then, and then there were two more elements. The one was the Sherpas, who were very clear that after the bad storms, you often get a window of stable weather. And our team leader had made a real effort to integrate the Sherpas. Some people treat Sherpas like porters, like... Like hired you know, help? Yeah, basically third world hired help. Uh, some of the teams really are quite snotty about it. But at the same uh, whereas, time, but yet they're some of the sometimes the most skilled climbers on the team. Yeah, absolutely. But it's not, you know, you can be incredibly skilled, but not have finished high school and have broken English and have never gone more than, you know, 100 miles from the village. Skill is not just PhDs and the sort of, you know, Ivy League education that we val value in our society. And these guys have deep skill but it's not the kind that we recognize easily in the West. It's about rarely understanding an environment. And our team leader had, had done a couple of things to make sure that the Sherpas were fully integrated. 
up to promising them not just that they could climb to the top, not all teams allow their Sherpas to go to the top because it costs more if your Sherpas get to the summit. There's a bonus you have to pay. But they also promised them that even if we gave up, all of us, the Sherpas could take the equipment and still get to the top because it's recognizing they're not just porters, they're climbers. They're they people want, with ambition. They want to climb the mountain too. Yes. They, it's not as if they'd climbed Everest six times each. I think one of them had been to the top from the other side. And the others had never been to the top. These are wow. young, keen, ambitious, young Nepali guys, super stoked to be on the mountain. And that promise, you can climb anyway and you will get paid anyway, that made a big difference. So the Sherpas are like, hell no, nobody's going home. <laughs> We've got a mountain to climb. <laughs> come on, come on, you <laughs> South Africans, let's get this exactly. together. Pull yourselves together. And then the <laughs> final element, uh, which was a sort of a little cherry on the top. So we've committed to going back. We're climbing back up the mountain. We've got up to camp two. There's quite a lot of logistical stuff to sort out because we've got to restock food. We actually had to buy oxygen off other teams that were giving up because, you know, we've used our own oxygen. There's quite a lot of management around this. So we're up, back up to camp two and they call us from base camp and they tell us, there's a phone call for you. It's President Nelson Mandela. Wow. Yeah, wow. <laughs> and he'd phoned up to say, and this call went out publicly on radio. Uh, he said, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you for trying again. I believe you can do this. And like, yeah, wow. <laughs> so it was our own sort of Invictus moment on the mountain. And of course, he knew nothing about mountain climbing and he had no idea whether we could do it. But that's on us. And he gives the inspiration. Go ahead, I'm sorry. As you can say, he, he gives the inspiration, and it's up to us to turn that into action. Yes. Mandela, was, I mean, he was no dummy. That guy, so brilliant to look at when you look at something like an Invictus, right? And I worked mm. with a man named Don Beck. I don't know if you ran across his name. Uh, no. He was kind of one of the, one of the inspirational parts behind Invictus. Um, okay. Really encouraging Mandela that sport might be one of the ways to help to unite these different value systems and cultures under the surface mm -hmm. the country coming together. And he went over there something like, I think it was like 30 times in, in 10 years, maybe longer than that. It was a, a lot of, a lot of work on it, but you know, like Mandela knowing that if I can get a united climbing team to get to the peak of the world's highest peak, what that will do for community locally. If I can get people rallying behind South Africa's football team, rather than, you know, we're going to look at, it's just, he yeah. saw what was happening. He knew how important that yeah. was. And yeah. to call base camp, goodness sakes, that's awesome. And so we, we pulled all of that together. We were very careful. We actually blew a summit chance when the IMAX team got to the top and it left us the very last team on the mountain. Uh, we got to the top on the 25th of May. And yeah, that's, that's a moment. And, and when, and, Concluding this part too, you, thirty-seven-year-old uh, Bruce Herod, he he passed away on the descent, and this was a part of your party. Did you did you know Bruce? Um, had you, I mean, at, at this point, obviously, you guys have spent so much time together. But did you know him before? And I mean, to me, this is—I know you, you mentioned that you know everyone knows the risks on a climb. Um, I haven't lost a partner personally, but I know a few climbing friends that have been on an expedition and it really is. It's something that, how, how do you walk through that? And I'm just, I guess I'm curious. I don't know how to say this, but your, your take, your mindset about that, how do you walk through on one hand succeeding with this ultimate goal? And then on the other hand, losing a, a member of the party um, on the way down. It was incredibly hard. And I don't think there's actually an, a smooth way to kind of justify the risk we take. So I hadn't known him before the expedition, but he was a lovely guy. I really enjoyed him. You know, when you meet someone and go like, oh, yes, this is the sort of friend I'd like to keep in my life uh, for the long term. He was that kind of guy. And... I don't know. There's no doubt when you're young and climbing, there's a strong sense of it's my life. It's like, oh, thank God I'm an adult. Finally, I get to run my own life. 
and I get to do all these wild and exciting and dangerous things and my parents will just have to suck it up and suffer. And then as you get older and you have friends who are killed and you go to the funerals and you deal with their parents and with their partners and you're like, ah, oh, yes, it's my life, but I'm, I'm interconnected and the choices I make affect other people. And I've lost various friends over the years. And God, just in the last two months, um, one, not a close friend of mine, but a close friend of friends of mine, and, and then right now, there are two very famous climbers missing on Manga Palbat. Uh, it was not a question that ever goes away. And all I can say, I think, is that I've gained so much from climbing. It has enriched my life. It has taught me things about myself. It has made me braver and more confident and more passionate and more thoughtful more skillful, better prepared. All of that has come from challenging myself while trying to understand and mitigate risk. And I would not want to lose a thing that I've learned from climbing. But the dark side of that gift is the risks we take. It does. It, people we've lost. It comes with a cost, a potential cost that very often is a real cost. Um, and I hope this is okay. I know we're kind of in the middle of this and I know there, there's a couple really prominent moments, but also it is, a, I mean, a, a little dark when you have to walk through something like this, it changes. Well, yeah, I don't want to say what it does because I haven't, I haven't had the experience you had. Um, but if I could, and we'll get into some brighter stuff, I promise guys. But in 98, you had what uh, BBC radio described as the choice. I know there was a book about that as well. When you had someone's life really literally in your hands and I guess, I mean, as a climber, I've been wanting to ask you, you know, this ever, ever since I found out about you, um, you know, as climbers, we always have a version of this, right? Like you said, if you get on the mountain, you know, the, the risk and it could be any size mountain. It could be any weather, something could happen. And when you're climbing with a partner or with a team, you very literally have their life in your hands, even if it's a belay on a top rope on a small local crag, right? Whatever it is, there is no there's always some kind of a risk where you have, you have a choice to make. But in this case, um, it was an attempt in 1998. You came across a very real choice in uh, Francis uh, Arcentive. She was 40 at the time and became the first woman from the United States, first American to reach the summit of Mount Everest without any oxygen. And she had summited and on her way down, you found her on her descent on your way up. Was that accurate? Yes, but let's, Give a little more context to it. I, I would love to fill in all the gaps. Um, I'd love to hear just the story and, and what it means for you. So Frances and her husband, Russian husband, were climbing just the two of them. No oxygen, no radios, no Sherpas, no team. And that is the cutting edge of modern mountaineering. It's also highly risky. It means you have no backup. So they went up to the high camp. This is on the north side. The high camp is even higher. It's at 8,300 meters. They spent quite a long time up there waiting for good weather. This was kind of all pieced together afterwards. Uh, they then made a bid for the summit. They got to the top. They were seen uh, by telescope from base camp by one of the other teams. They took a very long time to get to the top. And on the way down, Francis collapsed. Her husband, Sergei, appears to have left her to go for help, and he disappeared. His body was found several years later. He clearly fell off the mountain. Oh, goodness. So we don't know that any of this is going on. And when we get up there, we leave in our summit bid. There are five of us. And we leave a little bit late, sort of 2 o'clock in the morning. So we come across Francis at the foot of the first step before dawn. So it's light but it's very, very cold. And the sun's just beginning to rise, but we're in the shadow of the ridge. And I actually spot movement. I assume it's a body, and then it sort of jerks. And I go across and find this woman. I don't even realize it's Frances, who I have met, although only once, uh, because she looks so different from the frostbite. And she's been up there uh, for at least 24 hours at that point, you know, lying there. 
And the question now is, what do you do? And I think what I find frustrating in trying to explain this is people who live in cities go like, oh, where there's life, there's hope. There must be something to be done. What they mean is they're going to phone 911. And, and then, someone else is going to come in and save the day. Yeah. yeah. And if that person gets put in the ambulance and dies in the ambulance on the way to the hospital or dies on the operating table in the hospital or whatever it is, like, well, that happens. But, you know, I did something. Was on the mountain, there's no one to call. There is no rescue. We are far higher than helicopters can fly, even more so back then. But even now, you can't get a helicopter that high. And just for my American friends, you said you're about 8,300 feet at the high camp on this side of the mountain. That's 27,000 feet. Everest is 29,000. Oh, yeah. Well, no, we're above that now. We're at the foot of the first step. We're at 8,600 meters. Is, is this on the Hillary step side? No, this is on the north side. So this the is the, what's called the first step. So you're at the first step. So you're just about at 29,000 feet. Yeah. Jeez Louise, which is, I mean, yeah, you're talk about into the, yeah. you've been into the dead zone for thousands of feet. Yeah. There's no rescue and, up there. And no one else is around. So how many people are, are in this arena? Is it really her and the five of you? There's no, yep. there's no other team. There's not a bunch of people like you might see in the movies on the line, just no. below, you know, all that kind of stuff going on. It's just, no, this is long before the line exists. Wow. No, this was back in the day. No, there's nobody else up there. And so to run very quickly through the things people think of, give her oxygen. Okay. It's not scuba diving. We're not carrying a spare mask. We're not acclimatized to be at that height without oxygen. This is a bottled oxygen ascent. So it's like, give her oxygen. Okay. Whose mask? And then there's the reality that when we climb, we run oxygen at three liters a minute. Uh, if all oh, this is what, how it was done back then, it may have changed since. Uh, if you're trying to give somebody medical oxygen, you, you would run it at seven liters a minute and you'll run through your bottle, you know, in 20, 30 minutes that way. So we could run through all our bottles in a couple of hours. We can't get her anywhere in a couple of hours. And so realistically, just, how long would it take? Because again, it's not, uh, they say it's not scuba diving where you find someone under the water and you go quick, here's my oxygen mask. And then they take their breaths and now they're fine. You're talking about okay. supplemental oxygen for altitude. So how long realistically is it that it, it could even make a, a medical difference potentially? It's not a matter of a few breaths, right? Yeah, no, essentially given her situation of kind of acute hypothermia, it wouldn't have made any difference that would have helped us. Yeah. Because essentially, a climber needs to be vaguely mobile. If they can sort of stand on their own feet, then you've got some chance because you can get an arm under both shoulders and try and shuffle them down the mountain. Once your climber is utterly unable to stand and she's flopping around like a sack of potatoes, she's got no body control whatsoever at this point. Uh, now you need to carry them on a stretcher. And if you ever talk to someone who does mountain rescue, a stretcher carry involves a stretcher, you know, a proper stretcher uh, that is rigid and has handles. And normally you would have six people carrying and you would rotate them out every 10 minutes. That's what it takes to carry people off a mountain in you know, the, the lower 48 in the US or in the European mountains. And even that's not easy because you're talking about altitude and it's already hard enough yeah. to descend, let alone walk. And you're talking about flattish conditions. If they have to start lowering them with ropes. So in this situation, there's no stretcher. There are no other people. Yeah. It's just us. And I think what people don't realize is sometimes the person can be alive and it doesn't matter. They're going to die anyway. And again, it doesn't have to be, you know, this incredible scenario on Everest. If you rock climb like I do, the guy falls off, smashes his head open. He can be alive and bleeding out at your feet. The fact that he's alive makes no difference to the fact that he's going to be dead in 10 minutes from now. And on these high mountains, when sometimes people feel that climbers are callous because they say there's nothing to be done, it's because there's nothing to be done. 
No amount of wringing your hands and saying, yes, but what if? Change this situation. And when you have, you know, there, there's these moments, right, that have become, um, and thank you, thank you for, for sharing that so candidly too, Kathy. I, I appreciate it. I know that's not easy either. Um, you know, there's these moments that have become famous, right? Like, and again, I can see how it's, it almost becomes a glorified uh, a media moment where you go, wow, you came there and you had to choose your life or hers. And it wasn't really that case. She had already chosen. She had chosen, not you. She had chosen every single circumstance that led to the consequence of here I am too far gone. And when you hear about a climber who, you know, cut the rope on his partner, it's very easy to villainize and say, oh, how could you give up? How could you cut the rope? But to, and again, I haven't had to make that decision, but it does feel that when you come to that moment of the choice is already made, as you said, right? It's, I'm not deciding to give up. It's like that already happened. And now the only way out is this is the next step. I, I guess, and I, I guess maybe we, we answered our own question here is how do you, how do you walk through that afterwards? And a, a big part, as you said, was realizing the choice was already made and the fate is already sealed essentially, even by the time you came upon her. Um, what have you, what have you done with that or any other moment of those hard choices? What have you done with that? I don't know. I, I guess since then, because I know one of my personal philosophies is no matter what happens, how big, how negative, how whatever, at some point, whether it's immediately or years down the road, I'm going to take from there the, the Phoenix from the ashes and I'm going to take something good from there. And I'm going to use that for the benefit of myself and the benefit of others. Um, I'm sure a version of this or different parts that you've been through has crept into your corporate stories and crept into, uh, you tell a story in your book, of course, um, phenomenal book, by the way. Yeah, I should uh, definitely, definitely get this. You can get it on Amazon and everywhere. Uh, it's called, it's a New York Times bestseller called Just for the Love of It. The first woman to climb Mount Everest from both sides. And there's this story and so many other incredible stories in there of Kathy's adventures on her four, uh, well, I guess in the, in the ebook you added in one of the more recent climbs, but in all of your, your summit bids and your summits of Everest. So in a long-winded sort of way, yeah. Kathy, um, what's you do you have a strategy or do you have an approach or philosophy that is how you um, turn these kinds of things around and, and use them as fuel or use them as inspiration and I don't know if that's the right way to even ask that you know I hope you know where I am with that I, yes I think I do and I, I think I think my answer would be in all of this you have to be doing it because you've really thought about what you want, why you want it, and what you're prepared to give. Because of course, the, the upside of mountaineering is that we can essentially, in some ways, do what we like in this kind of very restricted, um, limited world we increasingly live in. Mountaineering is this space where you make choices, you make your own choices, and you live with the consequences. And most of us celebrate that freedom. Uh, we love that. But of course, the downside is if your choice goes wrong and you die on a mountain, you die on a mountain. You've chosen to go to places where there is no rescue or where the only rescue is your own team and they may not be able to rescue you. You've chosen to do things where the, you know, the, the, edge, the edge of safety gets quite thin. But there's enormous kind of freedom in taking those choices exploring those consequences. I don't see it as dicing with death or anything like that. I see it as managing risk. It's this kind of real world game. You have this environment you can't fully predict, you can't fully control, but you go into it with yourself, your team, your skills, your training, your experience, and then you try and navigate through it safely. It's a very interesting challenge. But you do need to have been very clear-eyed about what the risks are, what the rewards are, and why you want them, why you do this. So at the bottom of all of that, I think it's about living a considered life, having spent some time with yourself saying, what am I good at? What do I want in life? What am I prepared to risk? What are the rewards that matter to me? Rather than living a life where you just get buffeted around and react to what's happening, you know, get sort of swept along by life without ever stopping and 
interrogating yourself about what's the point, what's the goal. I love that living a considered life. And, you know, we, we talk kind of in my industry, a little, the expert in the podcasting and coaching space and yours as well. Um, you know, we talk about living an intentional life or purposeful, but I really love that term. It just, it, it adds the right tweak I needed. Living a considered life where you fully consider the pros, the cons, the risk, the reward, what you really want. I think that's phenomenal. So I know this is, you have a great talk. I know we're just about out of time, but as we kind of get into the twilight, last couple of questions for you, Kathy. Um, mm-hmm. You have a great talk you give at seminars and corporate events. Um, I, I said in, in the open of, of the show, you've been, uh, I mean, you, you've been brought in by some of you know, the, the biggest corporate names, you know, pretty much out there, who's who, like Microsoft, Nestle, Toyota, DHL, GE, Rolls-Royce. Um, you've been in media from everything, from National Geographic to GQ, for goodness sakes. And you have this talk I, I love, watching the clip of this, um, Think Like an Explorer, going where no one has gone before. Can you tell us a little bit about like that metaphorical link when you do that presentation for uh, you know, a different kind of an audience, right? that corporate audience? Because uh, what a great link right? from adventuring into personal life and business. Think Like an Explorer, going where no one's gone before. Does that tie into what you're talking about here with the risk reward or what, what's the take on that? Well, that's actually a talk based around the most difficult Himalayan climb I've ever, I was ever part of, which was not Everest. And in a sense, that's where I start with that is Everest. These days, Everest is this queue of $130,000 clients, uh, you know, shuffling up one behind the other on the safety line. So if you're still trying to innovate, to be at the cutting edge of your sport or your business or your market niche, you can't be in that queue. You have to be out ahead. The way, you know, Hillary and Tenzing were when they did the first ascent of Everest. Yes. It's not about Everest. It's about doing something that's never been done before. So I take them then on the story of when I was part of a team that tried to climb a new route on Nanga Parbat, which is one of the 8,000-meter peaks. It's up there with K2 for difficulty and death rate and And we were trying to climb a route that people had attempted and no one had ever succeeded. And the talk essentially is the journey of how we planned and then attempted that climb and kind of the mistakes we made, the lessons we learned, not so much about how to climb because these are corporate clients. They don't actually want to know how to climb, but they are interested in how to execute a project in this very difficult, unpredictable, unknown environment. And we came, we kind of blew it. There were six of us. And if, we, if we'd done a better job, maybe we could have got all six to the top. In the end, we only got two to the top. And it was supposed to take 10 days. And the two who got to the top spent 18 days on the mountain. This is Alpine style. No resupply, no set camps. Wow. They, they, we, we all ran out of food after 11 days. They ran out of water after about 15 days. Uh, They came incredibly close to killing themselves. One of them had toes amputated to frostbite. Oh, gosh. Um, And four of us extricated ourselves a little earlier, myself included, because no one mountain was worth the level of risk we were now taking. But the story is essentially about what it takes to tackle a challenge like that and then how it goes wrong. And it tends to go wrong. Uh, We had some problems with integrating different kinds of expertise on the team. We had some problems around communication, not clean enough, rapid enough. But essentially, we also had a problem about being fixated with the plan. You're doing something that's never been done before. It won't go to plan. And it's really hard to keep your eye on the goal while being flexible about how you get there. Because it makes you look like you don't know what you're doing. You keep changing your mind. You know, you wander backwards and forwards trying to work out what to do next, but that's part of what it takes. And if we finally came together when we basically abandoned the plan and started again mid-mountain with the reality of the situation facing us that morning and came up with a new plan on the fly based on our, our experience and our expertise. Um, yeah, it's, it's a great story and one that I love telling. I would certainly love to hear that in, uh, in its full details. Kathy, I know we got to let you go here. Um, final question is, you know, you've been through so much with climbing. Uh, I know you love it. If you could change anything, what would you change on your journey or would you leave it all the same? 
Well, I'm not going to pick any of the obvious ones where people died as if, well, well if I'd known beforehand, you know, we'd have done it differently. Of course we would have. Um, let's take it as a more general question. In retrospect, I wish I'd taken myself more seriously early on. And a little bit of that was about being a woman in a man's space, but it's not just about that. It's not just a gender thing. It's about trying things with full commitment and full seriousness. And a lot of the time I felt like a bit of an imposter and I felt worried that other people wouldn't take me seriously, so I didn't take myself seriously. And I felt that if, you know, I presented my, my excuses early, it would help to justify if it didn't go wrong. And I regret some of that. I wish I just had more faith in myself and then more serious commitment to some of the challenges. Hmm. I haven't heard that one yet. I wish I took myself a little more seriously early on and be a little more committed to some of the serious challenges. Phenomenal. Well, Kathy, thank you for, for joining us on the show. I really, really appreciate your time. Um, you're an inspiration, my friend. You're an inspiration for sure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for a really interesting discussion. I've enjoyed it. I have too. And I can't wait for hopefully more. So guys, follow Kathy on Instagram and LinkedIn. It's Kathy O'Dowd, O-D-O-W-D, O'Dowd. Uh, LinkedIn, Instagram, she's everywhere. KathyO'Dowd.com. And I want to mention again, um, her New York Times book, Just For the Love of It, The First Woman to Climb Mount Everest from Both Sides. Phenomenal read. You got to get this. So grab it on Instagram or wherever books are sold. Um, if you want to, uh, I'm sure you can go onto LinkedIn and, and message her if you want to look at booking her to speak at your seminar or your corporate event. She does that. She's about to head off on a tour across Europe and uh, to several different events and several different companies. She also has a really cool, if you're on the other side of the map, if you're a climber, if you're an adventurer, listen to this. She has a really cool uh, tool that I've already downloaded called the Business of Adventure. It's the businessofadventure.com. And it says, is it six ways, Kathy? Six ways to get your adventures funded? Or am I making eight, up that? Eight, eight ways. Eight, eight ways. ways. I don't want to shortchange you. Eight ways. Exactly. So through sponsorships and through crowdfunding and various different uh, processes. Really cool. So it's this, this template blueprint of eight different ways to fund the adventure that you want to create. Um, really cool. And we're going to be talking about a, a potential documentary I have coming up as well. And I'm going to be using uh, your eight ways and hopefully finding a way to make you a part of it too, if you're game. Brilliant. Let's stay in touch. All right. Thanks so much, Kathy. Been a pleasure. Bye. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Make sure you rate, subscribe, and review. Awesome time together. Uh, follow Kathy O'Dowd, Instagram, LinkedIn, kathyodowd.com. She's the best. Take care. Ooh, man. If you got to the end of that, um, what'd you think? Let me know. Uh, you know, reach out on social media. Let me know how that was at Matt Browning. Um, you'll see, I'll, I'll put up uh, a few Instagram posts and Facebook posts about Kathy. Um, I was, I was, I, I'm telling you, if you like that interview, I loved it. This was, if, if no one ever listens to it, that interview was for me. Um, it was such a pleasure, uh, such a pleasure to get to know Kathy and to really, uh, and hopefully I was able to ask some poignant questions, things I was genuinely curious about. And I was wanting to get kind of into your mind, you know, and what you might be wanting to ask someone like that and, and hopefully getting into her mind too. So remember, you can follow Kathy on social media, and please do, Instagram, LinkedIn, at Kathy O'Dowd, and it's uh, O-D-O-W-D, Kathy O'Dowd, Kathy is with a C. Again, uh, her website is kathyodowd.com, and you can find her book, uh, the New York Times bestselling book, Just for the Love of It, The First Woman to Climb Everest from Both Sides, and I love her explanation, why would you call it Just for the Love of It? Why else would you climb Everest again? So great. She also has... Uh, if you are an adventurer, if you have a passion, uh, we talked about that in the interview, make sure if you would like to get it paid for, she has uh, that phenomenal resource called thebusinessofadventure.com. And there are several different methods and, and tips on how to get sponsorships, how to get your trips paid for, and even how to make money, whether it's through speaking or whether it's through, again, advertising, sponsorships, et cetera, et cetera. There's some really, really cool stuff there. So I'm picking that up because uh, I am looking at doing something in the near future. In fact, as we conclude here, make sure you follow Kathy, get her uh, The Business of Adventure and pick up the book. Last thing I want to tell you, and I'll let you head off for the weekend. Enjoy your weekend. Enjoy your Friday. 
I have a very special podcast coming out on Tuesday. So make sure if you like this, you'll love Tuesday as well. It's not with Kathy. I actually interview uh, my climbing partner, David Shea. And David and I go back years. He is my one of my best friends in the world. And we've been on, stranded on mountains together. I've had the moments in my life when I thought I wasn't going to make it with him. Uh, but I've also had some of the most exhilarating, fun times with him as well. Uh, he's, a, he's an awesome human being. And we have, again, another extended uh, interview, an extended podcast. So next Tuesday, I'm going to drop that. And David and I just, we talk through really my history and his history uh, in climbing. You hear just, you know, some personal stories I've never shared anywhere else before. I've never shared on stage. I've never shared on the podcast. Uh, David and I just, we share all those stories together. And then we talk about um, our big, big goal for this year. It's a pretty big, audacious goal. Um but we share it and we talk about it. And next Tuesday, I'm going to put that goal out there. So look for it on the podcast and look for it on social media. That's it for this week. Enjoy your weekend. As usual, get out there and crush it.